Hey guys, it's Clay Reichenbach. Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. Today my guest is literally one of the fittest men on the planet. His name is Jason Grubb and he is a two-time CrossFit champion. He's also a coach, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a dedicated father of four. However, as always, a lot of our conversation focuses well away from his physical attributes. In fact, we don't spend any time on CrossFit or even fitness until minute 36 of this conversation, which for me is perfect and exactly the type of conversation I want to have with someone like Jason. Jason has an incredibly interesting transformation story. He didn't start this CrossFit journey until 38 years old. With the birth of his third child, he decided to transform his life, both from a mental and physical perspective, which started him down this path that culminated with him winning the title of fittest man on earth. We certainly cover that journey. However, what I found most interesting about Jason was not the physical. He is someone who's not afraid to speak honestly about setbacks, about insecurity, about the sacrifices that are required to pursue goals like the ones he does, and he's not afraid to be vulnerable. He spent years in therapy. We explore that in the podcast. I didn't know that coming in. But he speaks openly about that time and what he learned from that time. He has a master's degree in psychology and was even a practicing therapist himself for many years. I really hope we covered some ground not typically explored with a CrossFit champion or someone with his resume. And I think we largely accomplished that today. I want to thank you, Jason, for your time. I want to thank you for your honesty. I want to thank you for just a beautiful conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Grubb. Guys, before we get going, I just want to remind you, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share the podcast. Subscribe to our socials at Examined Athlete on Instagram and Twitter. We're much more active on Instagram, but either one works to keep up with what we're doing. You can check out more about the show at www.examinedathlete.com. Your support your kind words, your feedback will absolutely never go unnoticed. I promise you that. Thanks, guys. So I want to start here. If my research is correct, you have a master's degree in psychology, but it is... Yes. It appears you use that degree to go into wedding photography and <laughs> professional poker playing, I think. So maybe walk us through your journey into psychology and uh, then the path you took after university. Yeah, it was I a colorful resume. When I was 21, 22-ish, I finished my bachelor's degree and I got, it was just a business organization degree. Literally, it was a throwaway degree to just get a bachelor's degree checked off the notch, right? But I knew someone at the university who connected me to uh, a little Christian high school in Arvada, Colorado, and, and they were looking for a teacher. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I've never taught. I'd love to give that a shot. And I gave it a shot. It was super fun for this one semester. But then it was actually like, I, I don't know what I'm doing teaching. I have no experience. There wasn't a lot of guidance there. So what I did enjoy was the one-on-one -on -one 
connection that I, I had with the students. I mean, I've really enjoyed that. And I thought at the time, man, really what that is, is, is just doing, I would really be interested in doing therapy. I was seeing a therapist at the time and I really looked up to him and thought, well, this would be really, really a cool thing to do. So I was very interested in becoming a therapist because I looked up to the therapist that I was seeing. I loved what, what he had done for me. So I applied and I, I got into a master's program and I flew through that program in record speed, uh, just taking every class that I could while working full time and having a two-year-old married with a two-year-old at the time. So I got that master's degree and thought, really, I want to be a therapist. Did my internship for six, eight months, opened a practice, and then I was a therapist, straight up counseling in an office. I wore the slacks, the button-down shirt, drinking coffee. These are the things you do as a therapist. I think those are pretty standard practices and ideally helping people along the way. After a few years of that, I realized that what I loved about the therapy practice was actually building the business. When I was first getting started, I was creating referral networks and, and, and connections with doctors and, and churches, people that needed to refer their patients or their clients or, or people that they need, that need help to me. And I loved creating that business. And I actually didn't love delivering therapy. I didn't love actually sitting in the room doing it. Now I had a couple of moments that were fantastic. And that's the wonderful thing about being a therapist is that just because you have a degree on the wall and you sit leaning in to, and listening to somebody, people, people heal when they're heard really well. And a really good therapist does that well and has interventions that even push that further. I wasn't a good therapist yet. I didn't have enough years to be a great therapist, but there were some really neat moments. I think good things happened in my counseling office, but I felt like, well, I really love the business part of this, but I don't love doing therapy. And I had two kids at this time around, mm, I was 31-ish, somewhere in that range. I was going through some some life challenges. I was uh, in the process of separating and, and in a divorce situation, still trying to provide therapy. And I just, at that point, I was hating therapy and I felt a bit hypocritical. Like I was, my life felt chaotic and I just didn't feel like I was doing a great job. And I took this trip to Las Vegas. I've always loved playing poker, like in home games with friends, different little things like that. But I took a trip to Las Vegas. I just wanted to play some poker. I thought that would be really fun. So I flew out, played poker. I think I took $500 with me and I, I played bigger stakes than I'd ever played in my life. I did well on that first trip, did really well. So I came home, I booked a trip two weeks later because I had my kids a part of the week and then not part of the, on the, the other part of the week, I was solo. So I thought, well, I'll just go back out there and see if I can earn a little more money playing poker. And I did well. And of course my brain, and I know myself well enough now that with that little tidbit of success, I'm like writing a business plan on a napkin on the plane as I'm flying back, like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to book out all these hotels ahead of time. I'll book out all my flights ahead of time to save cash. And I'm literally going to start traveling back and forth every week to play poker. And this was 2007. So there was this huge economic bubble happening in the world at the time. There was a lot of money out there, which makes for really good poker. And I did well. Playing higher stakes than I would ever, ever in my life imagine. Sitting down with $5,000 or $15,000 on the table at risk. And the summer of 2008, 
world financial crisis happens and I'm t- I don't know anything about financial crises. I don't know what that's going to do. It never occurs to me that 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 means that there's not going to be people with disposable income traveling to Las Vegas to play poker. It just all stopped. Then all of a sudden I'm left playing poker against poker players. That is not a winning strategy for me. <laughs> you, you don't want, you know, if, if you're wondering who the, who's the fish at the table, uh, it's you. If you're wondering that, it's you. And I, I could not win. I couldn't, I wasn't generating a profit. And so three or four months into that, I, you know, I had like $900 to my name, to my existence. I lost everything in the divorce and even had some issues with, with credit at the time, just through that process. I, I got in some unfortunate situations with my ex-wife and it's all fine now. But then I had no credit, no, nothing. I had $900 and I left Las Vegas on my last trip with $900 cash in my hand. And I had a $1,400 rent the next week. So I sold a bunch of stuff. I, I went through two weeks of selling everything on Craigslist to, to come up with some cash. And I remember thinking at the time, what in the world can I do? I'm in trouble. I need money. And I'm certainly not going to get a job. That's just not my nature anymore. I, I left the corporate world at 27 to be a therapist. I'm done with that. What am I going to do? And I, I could take decent pictures. So I actually borrowed $2,000 from my dad to buy a camera. I had enough money to buy a lens. And I just posted on Craigslist that I'm a photographer you know, for hire. And literally that day, someone hired me for a gig to sh- take pictures of products that she had. She made custom saddles. And she called me and she said, what do you, what do you charge for this? And I was like, oh, yeah, I normally charge $400 for a project like this. I've never, ever done a project like that. But for and she's like, okay, that sounds good. I'll bring the saddles over. Oh, my gosh. I went to Home Depot. I got some, like, canned lights so I could light these saddles and take pictures. And I did that. She hired me for a couple of other projects. And I knew that I didn't want to do that specifically. But I knew that I liked people. I was I'm a very relational kind of person. And that's where I did research and I found that weddings pay money. Weddings pay real money. You're not charging $400 to shoot a wedding. You're charging $2,500 to, to shoot a wedding or $3,500. So I quickly pivoted within a week, pivoted to wedding photography and thought, I'm just going to give this a shot. And I booked a wedding. You know, I booked like my first wedding for $1,250 which was unbelievable because I hadn't been to a wedding in like 10 years and I'd never taken pictures at a wedding. I reached out to a bunch of wedding photographers. I went and shadowed a wedding photographer on a wedding. And in my first year, 2019, booked 10 weddings and survived the year. You know, after being dead broke at the end of 2008, 2009, shot 10 weddings and survived. 2010, shot 25 weddings, increased prices. 2011, shot 20 weddings, but at more like a seven to $8,000 price point and became a very successful wedding photographer in Colorado, shooting outdoor mountain weddings was the specialty that I chose. And that's the long answer to how I get a master's degree in therapy and somehow end up shooting weddings, which is, has nothing to do with being a therapist, but it does have to do with like crowd control and empathy and navigating tricky situations. Like these are all, skills I picked up, certainly in therapy, that when you're dealing with a bride and a mother-in-law and little things like that, you got to be a great person. Well, there's a ton there. There's a lot of questions for me there. So number one, I'll probably challenge you a bit later on the 
the idea that you don't like giving therapy because I would argue you're using that degree now in this holistic fitness endeavor. So maybe you just hadn't found the right medium to provide therapy, but I think you're doing that now. And we may talk a little bit later about how you're putting that knowledge to use. You mentioned you were in therapy in your early 20s, which I think is quite evolved for someone at that age. Are you willing to share kind of what you were, was this just keeping up with yourself, checking in on yourself? Was there something specific you were looking at at that point? You know, I, I fell into it. Uh, it was It's a remarkable story, actually. I had this corporate job at age 20, 21, just married, and a baby on the way, or maybe we had our baby already, I can't remember. But I worked in the mailroom of the Boston Market corporate headquarters. And at the time, Boston Market was just this exploding franchise. And it was it was really cool working in the mailroom. I learned all about like the corporate world in the mailroom. And I happened to be putting mail in the box of one of the executives, one of the founders of the company. I, I happened to notice that it was a subscription to a publication that I subscribed to. It was just really interesting writing and poetry and I didn't know anyone else on the planet that subscribed to the, the Mars Hill Review is what this was called at the time. And I happened to just send an email out of the blue to this corporate executive that said, hey, I didn't mean to read your mail, but you and I read this same journal. And he walked down to the mailroom and said, hey, Jason, that's really cool you read this. We should get some lunch. And I was blown away by this guy, of course. So we went and got some lunch. And he just asked me about my life, where I was at, and turns out that I didn't have the self-awareness at the time to realize I was, you know, I was a 22-year-old, 14-year-old, if, if that makes sense. I was, I was so young for being 22, so naive, yet I was married and had a child, but I was just, yeah, I was really struggling with distraction and, you know, even little elements of addiction at the time. So I would say overall, over time, I've I've realized that I have a pretty addictive personality, but didn't even know any of that then. And he was nice enough to just gently say, you know, Jason, I've, I've been in therapy my whole life. I've never met a therapist that I like, except for the one I'm seeing right now. And I know what you get paid. You can't afford him. But if you're willing to go, or if you're even interested in going, I'll pay for your therapy. And I was like, okay. So he referred me to his therapist, and his therapist is a, a very expensive therapist. Just to clarify, was this the very first meeting you guys had? First, first meeting. So you guys were getting deep here. He when he picked up on something. Yeah, he picked up on something. He picked up on on a, on a kid that thought he knew what he was doing, going full force into life and marriage and kids, but had sort of skipped a lot of developmental steps along the way. I didn't get in trouble in high school. I wasn't a destructive kid. I just was very, very young emotionally. And part of, or all, almost all of that therapy in the first few years that Tom paid for was with a master therapist. I mean, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. A lot of that was really developing and growing into being an adult man. I mean, it's strange as that sounds. And we, I guess we can identify, I can identify 25 year olds who are just children, just emotionally young. And that was me. And I didn't recognize it in myself at the time. And I didn't have 
my 20 year old friends weren't able to articulate anything like that. It was just happened that Tom at the right time in the right place had sensed that I was, I was, I was stuck in some areas. I don't remember now specifically what those were or even what I disclosed to him or how he picked that up, but he picked something up and offered to cover therapy. And then, I mean, it was years. I met with this therapist every week for four or five years before I could afford to pay for it myself. And, um, yeah, I called Tom at a certain point. I was like, it doesn't make sense for you to pay for this anymore. I can cover this. I mean, I saw that therapist for, I've seen him for 20 years. Um, I haven't seen him for a few years now, but he's been a part of my life through multiple transitions. So this one interaction in a mailroom where I happened to put this into his box and shoot an email turned into a life-changing thing. And when I mentioned that I wanted to be a therapist. It was because of this therapist, because of his impact on me. I, I thought to myself, if I could impact anybody half as much as he's helped me navigate into adulthood, I'd love to do that. And he said to me, you know, in the first meeting with the therapist, you have to, the therapist has to identify something, that one thing, a pain point. It's sort of like if you go into a dentist, say I have a toothache and the dentist is rooting around in your mouth. If he touches the pain, you trust that the dentist can fix that. If he can find the cap, if he can find it, he can fix it. And he said, a therapist has to do that in the first meeting as well. It's just harder. You're, you're working blind to try to find what is the pain in this guy or gal that you're working with. And if you touch it, you, you've got that client and you can help them. It's not nearly as quick as um, a dentist will help, but you have something there. You found it. Now you can work on that. And you'll probably discover other cavities in the soul along the way. What an amazing story. I can't even imagine taking a lunch with your boss. And not only does he pick up on something, he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to pay for therapy. And you're blowing up my outline here because I knew nothing about this, but this is insane. <laughs> and yeah. then to be at your age and see past the narcissism of, of I can figure this out or outside expectations of I'm seeing a therapist and realize that maybe I hadn't pinpointed what it is that's bothering me, but I can get something out of this. Cause I don't think 20 years ago it was quite as in fashion just to go to a therapist for normal upkeep. Now that's something husband and wives do, but what a story. Well, let's let's go back a little bit, kind of backtrack a little bit. So you said you were an athlete growing up. I didn't know that coming in. So you had some athletic ability. You were a gymnast. You had some good genes. What was your relationship with sport and fitness growing up? Well, I was pretty terrible at most sports, actually. I played soccer, baseball, really not great at those sports. Didn't even really enjoy them. Then a friend of mine started gymnastics in, I must've been fifth or sixth grade, somewhere in that range. And I decided to try that out. And something just stuck there. I was okay at it and I liked it and it was really engaging and it was very community oriented. So within probably six months of taking gymnastics classes, I wanted to be on the gymnastics team. I look back on my life now as a competitive athlete and understand that there was an expectation in my family. I was the firstborn. For whatever reason, I took on the expectation that I must be great in some way. I have to do great things. If you are familiar with the Enneagram, 
personality profile, I'm an Enneagram type three, which they call the achiever. Oh, you sent me down a rabbit hole, Jason. We're going to get to that. <laughs> I had never heard of that until a week ago, and I've spent hours on that website, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a three. And it's it, it couldn't be more clear that I'm a three. And somehow that develops in childhood. And, you know, a three tends to find, if they if they don't know how to get love, they substitute achievement for getting love or getting attention. So I did that. I found something I was good at. I was a decent gymnast in seventh grade. I competed in a state championship. So there were gymnastics meets throughout the year, but there was always a state championship. And I ended up winning the state championship, which up until that point in my life was by far the biggest achievement I could have ever imagined. And it was, it was really amazing. It was announced over the intercom at my, at my junior high. And I mean, that's, I always felt super inadequate in school and I, I never felt like I, I belonged with all of my friends. I wasn't part of the cool crowd, but that one day I was, it was good. It felt really good. Then I applied the pressure to myself in eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade to do that well, to be that good as I climbed the ranks. So there was levels at the time, level three, level two, level one, elite. And I never, and never got past the next level. It, the the, the skill sets were so hard the work was so hard and anybody who's a gymnast that's listening, you know, you're training three hours a day, six days a week, trying to master it. You can't skip a week. You can't skip a day the, the pressure is so high that I don't recommend it for anyone at all. Like gymnastics is great, but not competitive gymnastics. It's a mess. That's my personal opinion, but that was my experience. The other thing that was happening at the time, like I grew up in a really poor household. We, we had no money. So my nutrition was terrible. I look back on like how I ate as a child. I didn't eat anything. And so I'm trying to be this elite gymnast and I'm eating Captain Crunch for breakfast, like a roll and chocolate milk for lunch, maybe if I had enough money. And then for dinner, a, a flour tortilla with cheese on it. And that's a general day of eating every day while I'm training in the gym three hours a day. So I was, I was pursuing something so hard, but I just didn't have the support system or the understanding to how to actually support myself outside of training itself at the time. And when I quit gymnastics at uh, age 16, I was 16 and a half or so, uh, it felt like one of the biggest failures of my life at the time. Like I, I felt like I was disappointing everyone. Yeah, it was awful. It was awful. So I quit. I moved on. But that was the extent of my athletic career going through that. It was pursuing something that was completely unattainable given the uphill climb I was going to need to make. And honestly, from that age, like 17, 18 and on, I thought once I quit gymnastics, like I'm just going to get fat and out of shape. And I was really, really scared about that. So I, I would jog or I would, I, my dad ran, my dad ran every day. And that was what I thought you do in order to stay healthy. You just run every day. So I went through seasons of running every day on and off for the next 18 years, 20 years until age 38, when I, someone introduced me to CrossFit, it felt like gymnastics, except that I'm, a, I'm an adult. One of the things that is a reoccurring theme on this platform is misplaced value for athletes. 
basically when success stopped in gymnastics, that's where you stopped. And I think for all of us athletes, it's almost impossible to not build a sense of self-worth, build a sense of happiness from success on your field of play, whatever that may be. And that's one of the things that we'll continue to talk about in this conversation as you get into CrossFit, because I'm curious where you are now, because that's something that drives us as athletes, but it's a dangerous game to play. But it's a game we all play, and then we end up losing success at some point, even if you have an illustrious career, and you've got your value in the wrong spot. But before we get there, talk to me about the person you became in your 20s and 30s. From a physical and mental perspective, describe the person you were. In my 20s and 30s, I I became a, a worker. I, I attempted to achieve greatness by working really hard. And I did not, from an athletic perspective, I was just trying to maintain and not get thick. This was my, my whole goal on that side. And to exercise or run in order to reduce some stress, and a lot of that being internal stress, anxiety levels ran really high in my 20s and 30s. If I think of RPMs, like I, I was running hot on the RPMs during that time with an internal pressure to be successful at whatever I did, really successful. Being a therapist, moving on from that into wedding photography, I worked like crazy. So even when I was a therapist, I was working like crazy. So I was seeing clients, I was probably seeing 30 clients a week, plus meeting with doctors and any kind of person that could potentially be a referral source to me. Then when I left that, my life became poker. And so whatever I found myself doing from therapy to poker to wedding photography, those were predominantly what was going on in those years, I was all in and then some, using a nice poker term. <laughs> I'm all in. So when I was playing poker, if I wasn't playing poker and I was home in town taking care of my kiddos, I was reading poker books. I was playing online poker. I was watching footage of poker players, trying to understand how to be the most successful poker player that I could be. When I moved on to wedding photography, I didn't know how to take photos. I didn't know how to use a camera. So I watched YouTube videos about how to do that. And I engulfed myself in learning how to be a great photographer. At night, you know, watching an episode of The Office, then watching three hours of how to take photos on YouTube or how to be a great photographer or even critiques of photography that one of my favorite photographers would do. He'd do an hour long critique of three different photography websites. And I watched those for entertainment because I just went all in on, on all of those things. And then when it came to the wedding photography business in eight or nine years of shooting weddings, I probably took four weeks off maybe in nine years, but I, found myself needing to stay very busy, achieving whatever I thought would mean success in that particular industry or whatever I was doing. And, and even when I couldn't win at poker, that was a huge failure to me. Um, I remember literally, I mean, I shed tears when I was leaving the Bellagio for the last time as a 33-year-old failed poker player. I failed. And that was awful. It was awful. Can I make an observation? When I'm listening to you, Jason, I'm hearing your definition of success at this time as financial success. Um, at the time, yes. Which 
you're looking at someone who put value in financial success for years and years and years. I mean, my life was all about transactions. And when you keep saying all in, all in, I'm hearing all in on business. What about your home life? Looking back, are you happy with your commitment to family and fatherhood? Where I'm not hearing a whole lot of all in there. Was that not at the time your definition of success, being a great father or husband? Oh, no. No, not at all. No. I mean, to be fully transparent, those were not the things that were on the primary radar for me. But I had this idea that if I was financially successful, that was being the best father and best spouse that I could be, that I am, I'm taking care of them. And if I'm financially successful, I am taking care of them. Regardless of how much time I'm devoting into whatever I'm doing, the payoff will be that we're not worried about money. We're not worried about finances. We're not stressed about that. And the reality from that is that it costs a lot in relationships. It costs a lot of drifting for me. And I had never really thought about it until you said it like that, that where I feel like my motivation was where I felt like what I was doing was the right thing to be doing. What it cost me was, you know, closeness and calmness and restfulness because I was always working. In fact, I think about my late twenties and early thirties and even barely into my forties. Like I didn't have friendships that didn't have payoffs. Does it make sense? Yeah. Every oh, friendship is transactional. The, the word transactional, there's a great quote. I can't remember the, the guy who wrote good to great Jim Collins. He says, is that a great, a great life is about relationships, not transactions. And that really stuck with me. I had kids late in life, so it was a bit easier for me. I mean, I was 33 when I had my first daughter. But prior to that point, I certainly describe success as financial success, as achievement. I, to go to the Enneagram, I spent a lot of time on that page, Jason, and I actually brought some quotes today. It was painful to read how accurate it was. It really was. I mean, even the name The Achiever was just like, oh God, yes, I'm the, I, everything's, everything's about being this lauded achiever. And it says, I'm reading from the website, threes are self-assured, they're charming, they're ambitious, they're competent, they're energetic. But then here it comes, status conscious, check. They're driven, highly driven for advancement and financial success, check. They're overly concerned with their image, check. They care about what others think of them, check. Those are things that it's really easy to put your value in. But what I loved about it at the bottom of the page, it points you in the right direction. At your best, here's what you are. You know how good it feels to develop yourself, but here's the best part. And contribute those abilities to the world and motivate others to greater personal achievement than what they thought they were capable of, which is the journey I see you on now and yes. is the journey that, I'm trying to get on with this platform. So my journey was different. And I don't ever think I was a bad guy, nor do I think you were a bad guy. To me, it's about finding a way to take all of the aspects of the achiever that are great and keep those without putting your value in being this lauded achiever. Yes, yes. And despite, 
I just realized I have wearing a shirt with my own name on it right now. <laughs> um, that it's just I only have shirts that have my name on it. They're all free. But I, I agree with you. And I, if I could go back in time and understand that version of the Enneagram and understand what it means to be an achiever, what it costs to be an achiever, that it's very, it's very costly to be this personality type and every personality type, boy, I would have eased up on some of the pressure on myself if I had that understanding. And I knew going through all of that, that like, yes, this is a natural drive and that I'm probably not going to change myself or downshift out of this type of personality, but that I can see more clearly when I'm attempting to use a relationship as a transaction as opposed to an authentic relationship. I catch myself now when I'm doing that. You know, having your eyes open, it's literally, um, you know, once I was blind, now I can see. There's some freedom in that. And being able to see like, oh, man, I was being such an achiever just three seconds ago. Like, hold on, let me, let me dial myself back a bit. And I do see myself now. Well, actually, actually going back, I saw this fun YouTube parody of different personality types. And this three she was talking about homeschooling her kids or something like that. And she's like, I've become so good at homeschooling our kids. We have it all done. In fact, I've become the best homeschool teacher I could ever imagine faster than anyone else has ever done it. And I'm going to write a book to help others do it, which is just such a three. Like this is exactly how we operate. One of the other elements on my resume is just before I started CrossFit at age 38, I was 37 I guess, yeah, I was 37 at the time. And I got this harebrained idea. I had a little extra cash. I want to get my pi private pilot's license. I've always wanted to fly a plane. I want to get my private pilot's license. And I'm going to go for it. And I went for it. And the funny thing is, is the way a three gets his private pilot's license is he goes in for his discovery flight, which is where you get to fly a plane a little bit first. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, sign me up. And they say, okay, would you like to start next week? I'm like, oh, how about tomorrow? And so I start the next day. Most people will fly like two days a week and they'll do homeschool two or three days a week. And they'll, they'll take their time, you know, nine months to a year to get their private pilot's license. I flew five mornings a week with my guy. He was cool with it. I flew every morning. Uh, at the time, my wife was pregnant. She's like, are you sure you should be flying this much? The closer I get to you know, give, I'm like, ah, we're, oh, we're, we're never flying an hour further from home. Don't worry. And I got my private pilot's license in like three and a half months. You never do anything that fast, but that's a very three way of going for something. And if we want to analyze that situation, I think I was pretty nervous about everything going on in life, like another baby on the way. I'm, I'm overly stressed. So I'm just going to dive into this project head first and achieve a private pilot's license as absolutely fast as possible. Um, and then I did, and I flew like twice on my own, and that was fun. And then I moved on, like I, I achieved it. It's done, it's good. I could, in an emergency, if we're in a Cessna, I can land a plane. So there's always that. Let's get into your transformation a bit. So you mentioned 38 years old, you decide to transform your life, I think physically and mentally. That's the age I am, and I think we've been talking a lot about this, but about being a type three, there's there's got to be all kinds of spectrums because we definitely have different journeys. 
when I had my first daughter at 33, the light bulb went off about where my value should be. You point to the birth of your third child as the catalyst for this, I believe. And I'm curious to know what it was about that time or that birth that was different from the birth of your first two children. Yeah, my oldest daughter, so she's 23 now. My oldest, my older son is 21 and Henry is, is eight. And at 38, I remember thinking when he was born, I'm not young now. And I was young before. So I could take all kinds of leeway. I'm 21 and I'm 24 when Keegan was born, maybe 25. But now I'm 38 and I'm, I don't feel great as a 38 year old. You know, I'm drinking three, four beers a night. I mean, we packed a cooler to bring to the deliver to the hospital with a couple of IPAs in it. And it was just for fun at the time. But I mean, this was literally the lifestyle. And I was just eating a lot. And when Henry was born, I just remember thinking like, oh, man, I'm going to be 58 when this kid graduates high school or somewhere it's 56, you know. And that felt really old at the time. He was born. It's summertime. And I increased my running. That's really the only thing I knew to do was just I'm going to run more. I don't know how to eat better. don't know anything about that, but I'm just going to run more. And I got myself into a habit. I'm running like five, six miles, four to five days a week through the summer. And I say that I set out to do all this, but it's not, it's not 100% accurate. It, that, it looks good. It looks good, but nothing is ever that clear cut. I wish I could say like, he's born, I started, and I became a healthy human being. It, it wasn't a... B and C like that. It was, he was born. I need to start running more. So I started running more and then it started to get cold. So like November of 2013, literally it's November. Now it's just like this. It's getting darker earlier. I hate running in the cold. I hate running in the wind. And it's just this time of year where it's just gnarly to run. And the stars aligned. A friend of mine you know, she had been t- telling me over and over again that I would love CrossFit. Jason, you would do so great. I'm like, I don't need anyone to tell me how to work out. Like, I know what to do. I'm just going to run. I'll be fine. And her gym had this promotion. Like, I get a month free. She gets a month free if I join. And I could try out a class for free. So I agreed to do it. And I'm driving there. I'm nervous. I feel like I have to impress people because that's just what I do. I, even though I don't know what I'm doing, I feel like I have to impress people. So I go to this class. It's, it's, it's at this CrossFit gym. That's in like a, a warehouse graveyard. It's just a gross part of town in a dirt lot. I walk in, I think it's the front door, but I don't really know. So I go in, there's three people in the class, which is even more awkward. Like there's more of a spotlight on me because there's three people in this class and they had handstand pushups in the workout. And as a 38-year-old, I had maintained my ability to do handstands as a gymnast from high school. I could still kick up to a handstand and, and walk around a little bit. So this workout, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you know how to kick up to a handstand. I'm like, oh, I got this. I know how to kick up to a handstand. And so here's where the magic of that one class was with regards to an Enneagram Type 3 achiever. So I kick up to a handstand, and I could do these little handstand push-ups onto like uh, three ab mats, which is a CrossFit. These just these little mats. And 
They were so impressed that this 38-year-old, zero-experienced CrossFitter could kick up and do these like miniature handstand push-ups that it stroked my ego. It stroked my ego just enough that I was like, I'm in. I like this. Yeah, I'm. let's do this thing. So I found a gym close to my house, signed up, and went to their first class. This I literally went with my friend on a Friday, and I was at class at a gym near my house on Monday, 9 a.m. Walked in, super nervous, and I did not impress anyone in that class. In fact, I, I had my butt handed to me. I was destroyed in this workout that had like burpees and power cleans. It was an uber simple workout. But a, a, this woman next to me, who's pregnant with twins, I find out later, she destroyed me in this workout. And by destroyed me, I you know, this is just this CrossFit thing where she did it twice as fast as me. And I only did half the work. And I remember just being so confused, not humiliated, not humbled. How? Yeah. Humbled. How was anybody this good at this? And there were guys in there that were thicker than me and, and, and were moving much faster. I I was totally like flabbergasted. Like how, how is this happening? And that was enough to cause me to sign up for a membership. And I'm there six days that week, every day. I went every single day. I've never been so sore in my life. And in fact, Week two, I injured myself. Like, this is standard. If I jump into something, I injured, I I hurt one of my ribs. Something happened, and I hurt my rib. I had to dial it back for, like, two weeks. But then I was just, then I went. And, you know, people ask me, and they'll see my before and after pictures. They'll see my progression. And they'll see, like, the 2013 version of Jason and the 2018 version of Jason. And it's a dramatic change. Here's this fluffy guy in Jamaica holding a red stripe versus this this guy at the CrossFit Games who's got muscles, you know? It wasn't like that. I just loved going to class, having camaraderie with these other dudes at this 9 a.m. class. And it wasn't until about the six-month mark where I was doing a workout there. It had a run in it. So you, you run out behind the gym and down the street and you come back. And the sun was at my back as I was running back on this one workout. And I saw my shadow in front of me and my, my shadow had, had shoulders. And I was like, huh, that's gotta be an optical illusion. Like those aren't my shoulders. I hope those are my shoulders, but I feel like the sun is really exaggerating the situation. And uh, I, anyway, I finished the workout, didn't really think about it. And I went home and I, I was looking in the mirror and I was like, oh my gosh, like I have some round, I have some shoulders now where I didn't have shoulders before. And that was literally where I found the first element of progress. And that's like six months into this thing. And so when people are, people get started, there's always this expectation that we're going to see dramatic transformation really fast. And there's just no way to do that. That's not real. I didn't even expect to see that kind of transformation. I just happened to find something that I liked that was really interesting that gave me a workout that reminded me of gymnastics workouts. Like I remember coming home from gymnastics in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, just absolutely obliterated. And I loved that feeling when I was a kid. And I hadn't had any workouts like that as an adult where I felt in this amount of time, I just got this kind of a workout. And then I, I found it. I would come home at 10 30 in the morning and be just so destroyed 
And honestly, my anxiety levels, all of the things that keep my RPMs running super high for work and life and work and work and work, really, all of those were just kind of dialed down. And I'd never had any kind of fitness do that for me. And I loved it. So answering that question, you know, my son is born, I'm going to change my life. Well, yes, but the real version is he's born, I decide to run more. I hate running in the winter and I accidentally find CrossFit. Well, I also think you had a level of maturity is what it sounds like to me. You were 38. You were a different person than you were in your 20s. So those events coincided at the right yes. time. And yes. you mentioned about people thinking that progress happens overnight. We talk about that all the time, both in business and fitness and in life, is that if you're not brutally honest about the scope and the difficulty of the scope, you're going to give up very, very quickly. I tell people all the time, if you think something's going to take six weeks, that takes six months, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to quit. So we used to do that at my company. We would sit down and say, how difficult is this? Let's be very, very realistic on it. Because if not, we're going to just going to frustrate ourselves and we're going to end up quitting. I want to know your progression here. How quickly did it go from I really enjoy this. I want to be fit. I want to be healthy too. I want to kick everyone's ass in this gym and start competing. I mean, it's like immediate. It was like immediate, honestly. From the, the first few classes and that initial humbling, that confusion at how they're all so good and I'm so terrible at this. That was the initial spark. And I just wanted to be as good as the rest of the guys in my class. And I, I did that fairly quickly. Four or five months, I'm better than anyone in my class, except for one person. The owner of the gym happened to work out with the class that I was in at nine o'clock. And he was this 52-year-old athlete his whole life. And I just, I mean, he was untouchable, absolutely untouchable. And by about the nine-month mark, and the magic of that CrossFit class, and they, they, I, CrossFit still has this built into classes a bit, is that all the scores go onto a whiteboard or a digital whiteboard and are ranked throughout a day. So you go to the 9 a.m. class and you post your score, how quickly you got through a workout or how many rounds you got through in a specific time. There's a little bit of competitiveness to that. And I wanted to sit on top, but Keith was always in my way. There's always me, another guy, and Keith always battling for that top spot. And like the nine month mark, I was now hitting that spot consistently. I mean, that was the fire I just wanted to do. I wanted to be that good. And then I did a competition. They were all doing a competition about a year after I started CrossFit, a local competition. And I thought that would be really fun. I'd love to try that out. I was so nervous. It was like I was going to a gymnastics meet all over again. It took me back to those memories of all the butterflies in my chest and my tummy, barely being able to eat that morning. And I went to this competition. There's about 100 people in my division there. And I got sixth. In my mind, it's game over. I love this. I love competition. When is the next one? How do we do this? How do I, you know, what does this look like? And there's lots of local competitions. But there's, I guess it was just a year, six months into the, to, to CrossFit. Even before this local competition, there's this global event called the CrossFit Open. And this is where there could be three, 400,000 CrossFitters on the planet that compete in this global competition 
And it's a qualifier to the CrossFit Games. It's one of the steps to qualify towards the CrossFit Games. And I competed in that. I thought that was so much fun. Because for me, it was really just, can I beat this other guy? This one guy. His name was Steve. And if I could beat Steve, life is good. (laughs) And, you know, the following year, I opened my own gym. Within a year, I I loved it. And I, I literally thought about the math of how many clients do I need? How much does it cost to have a space? okay, I'm doing this. I love this enough. I'm going to do it myself. And I, I got the sliver of this idea in my mind and that's it. I'm doing it. And so within a year and a half of starting CrossFit, I owned my own gym thinking that it would be really easy to build this business. And if I had you as a consultant, you would have said, well, what's the difficulty level? Well, difficulty level 1000. So how long is this going to take? Longer than you could ever imagine. The hardest business I've ever had, ever, ever had. But I loved training and I continue to train. And as I moved into my 40s, there was this neat thing that CrossFit does. So they had the elite division, which is 18 years old to 35 years old. Then they have the master's divisions or age group divisions. So they had 14, 15, 16, 17, 35 to 39, 40 to 44, 45, 49, and so on. And all of a sudden, I'm not competing against 20-year-olds because our bodies don't respond at 40 the way they do at 24. So now I'm actually on a level playing field. Maybe I could qualify for the CrossFit Games, which was this bucket list idea. Like I just thought that would be amazing. So at 40, I went through the CrossFit Open. I took it very seriously. Like I want to qualify. And I qualified. I made the top 200 in the world as a 40 year old out of 20,000 guys, I'm top 200. And at 40, I go for it. And I, I miss like, it's a swing and a miss. I'm not even close to qualifying the top 20 get to go to the games. I'm 107th or something like and this that. This is what year? But I'm, I, uh, 2016, 2017 rolls around. Now I'm 41. I give it everything I've got the whole year training, everything I get. 56th or something, top 20 go to the games. It just feels impossible. But I change everything. It was literally between 27 and 2018. I changed my diet. I dialed my training down a bit. I was overtraining. So I, I started training consistently for what a 41-year-old should be doing for training. And in 2018, I qualified. Like, oh my God. I remember getting the email on my phone that it was official that I qualified for the CrossFit Games, I was ecstatic. I, I, like, you know, I, it was a, a, the achievement of achievements for an achiever. Like I done, I did it. I'm going to the games. The next week, I go to the gym. I'm training, and in my mind, I'm like, I am a CrossFit Games athlete. This is how I'm training now, and I tear my adductor in training and a groin muscle. It was devastating, absolutely devastating. I could not move into a squat for. Uh, well over four weeks. And I have about 10 weeks until the CrossFit Games. I mean, it was awful. I still trained. I just couldn't squat. Went to the Games, just trying not to be terrible. So nervous. So nervous going. All of these guys are stellar elite athletes. They they actually put it on your shorts. It's, it's not on my shirt, but on, my sh- on your shorts, it says, if you qualified in 13th place for the Games, your number is 413. So you see the 402, the 401, you're like, oh, that guy. 
dude, that guy's untouchable. 404, that guy's legit. That's kind of a little psychological gamesmanship on behalf of the administrators. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Okay. It's awful. And I'm 413. Like, I'm not even top. Dude. Like, I'm, I'm under the radar. So I go and I compete. And I do okay. And I ended up placing third. Like, bronze medal. I got a cash prize in 2018. And no one saw me coming. No one knew who I was. The camaraderie among masters athletes is amazing so all the 20 guys that year they're at the games like they all know me we're all friends and and i qualify and i go back to my gym where i i own the gym heading into 2019 and well before you saying, get to like, 2019 yeah. coming in with an injury taking four weeks off as someone who trains that's an enormous setback. You had to feel like that was a victory, a bronze, didn't you? Or were you were you the, such an achiever that you were not happy? No. Like, as long as I wasn't last place, I was happy to be there. I felt like just arriving was okay. Having that injury scared me because I was afraid I wasn't going to actually be able to go to the games. I got there. Ironically enough, they have never programmed back squats. I tore my adductor on a back squat. And back squats were part of one of the events. I couldn't believe it. But I had squatted heavier in training prior to the games, just prior to the games, than what was actually going on in the event. So third place was beyond anything that I could have ever imagined. So as far as the achiever goes, qualifying was the win. And never, you know, never thought, I'd ever stand on a podium at the CrossFit Games, or I'd, I'd be that guy. Then going into 2019, I felt that expectation. You know, members of my gym would ask me, like, hey, are you going to go back to the Games this year? And I wanted to, like, punch anyone who asked me that question. It's like, do you have any idea how hard it is to get to the Games? Like, this is so hard. I, I hope I go back, but there's absolutely no guarantee. In fact, in 2019, they made it so only the top 10 people went to the games, not the top 20. And I'm a year older. And luckily I snuck in in seventh place to get to the game. So I'm number 407. And I'm still looking at 401, 402. Like these guys are beasts. The competition was challenging that year. It was really hard, but I collected second and third places over and over and over again. And that's all you need to win the CrossFit games. I won one event, which was amazing, but if you collect second and third places, and as long as the same guy isn't getting first over and over and over, you can do well. And I remember the last day of the 2019 games, there were three back-to-back -back events, all within an hour time. It was two rep max overhead squat, one minute reset, this other event, one minute reset, another event, all on this outdoor field. This is it. I'm, I'm in first place heading into that day. And if I could just please hang on for a podium spot. And I sold my soul on these workouts. I gave everything possible. And I headed off the field and I saw my coach on the sidelines and I went over to her and she's like, you did it. I was like, no, I know I finished. She's like, no, I think you won. I was like, are you sure? She's like, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure you won. Like you, I'm pretty sure you won. Like I'm pretty sure. And I was like, I can't, there's no way. Like, I can't believe it. So I'm in the back room and we're waiting for the scores to get calculated. Like I didn't just win. I destroyed it. Like it was a 130 point win. It was a huge deficit between first and second place. And I got to put on this shirt. They, they give you this white shirt that says fittest on earth. 
And it was really amazing. It was unbelievable to go from a guy who just got destroyed by a pregnant woman, uh, which, I mean, she should be stronger than me. She was amazing. Like, props to her. But I was super confused how all of these people were destroying me to standing on the podium as the fittest person on the planet in this age group of 25, 30,000 men that, that compete in this age group. It was really, really amazing. Were you thinking about your journey when you were standing there on the podium? Is that what was the most prominent feeling was thinking about that journey? What was in your head? That, I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I did it. How did I do this? What was just amazing was I wanted to be an Olympic athlete so badly when I was in my teens. I went to gymnastics every day and I, I killed myself every day to try to be this Olympian, right? And it failed. And I, there's no way I could do it. There's no way. I wasn't even close. And then having that similar feeling when I was competing in CrossFit as a 39, 40, 41 year old, just God, I, I would love to go to the games and compete there. It was a dream come true to actually stand up on top of a podium to win this whole thing and win it without question. I still look back at it and I don't have the words to express how incredible that feeling was. And now at the same time, there was part of me that felt like an imposter. Like maybe I just got lucky, right? Maybe the workouts were just favored to me that year. Maybe I got dealt pocket aces and I won. Maybe I got lucky, you know? So I always, I had that little bit of feeling there. There were only 10 athletes. So maybe a couple of events there that favored me. They definitely favored me. There wasn't a heavy barbell. So maybe I wasn't hurt. You know, I always felt like maybe I just got lucky. And when I went back this year, it was a field of 20 again. They, they allowed 20 people to come in my age group. And I really had to battle. There was one other athlete that was close to me. Close enough that I, I didn't lock up a win by the last day. Like I had to perform on the last day. But to win it again this year was almost better than the first time. Because I was proven, right? This wasn't a fluke. I didn't. I didn't get lucky the first time. I didn't get lucky this year. You don't get lucky twice in a row at the CrossFit Games. It's, it's, it's you against 30,000 men. It's a you validation. Yeah, it was really nice to feel almost a relief, if that makes any sense. Like a relief. Like, okay, I am, I'm a legitimate athlete. I'm good enough to be here. I'm good enough to call myself a CrossFit Games champion. Not just a, not just as a marketing term, but like... Now I'm a two times or three times podium or two times CrossFit game champion. It, it creates that validation on the I CrossFit side of things. I find it interesting that it took that for you to think that you were, I'm quoting you, now I'm an athlete. I find it interesting that it took that. And maybe it's all the external validation that a type three requires, that your personality requires. But sometimes... It is about winning, and that's okay. I don't have any problem with that, but it's also about everything you put in. I think when you do focus on putting your value in the journey, the achievement not being the story, maybe it makes it a little bit easier. But I find that that interesting. But I also think it's inspiring to hear someone at your position, even at the highest of heights, you're still dealing with those insecurities and those doubts. And I think that's inspiring to someone who's maybe working to get there. And it may not be a CrossFit Games champion. It may be, 
you know, the best therapist in the world, or the best accountant in the world. But I think it's inspiring to hear that you were dealing with those thoughts. Let me tell you, it's an amazing accomplishment, no doubt about it. Well, let's talk just a couple more things and we'll wrap this up. But let's talk about sacrifice. I'm quoting you. You said winning the CrossFit Games requires imbalance. It requires great sacrifice. I want to know how you think about priorities. How do you think about your fitness goals and their relationship and their effects on your family and friends? Yeah, it's it's hard. It does require imbalance. And, you know, it's something that I, I tend to do well the busier I am. Meaning that if I have downtime, I tend to waste the time. So being busy, meaning being busy or imbalanced in training and having to run an entrepreneurial business that I run and having my boys and having lost a marriage, you know, these kinds of things were costly along the way. And the, the marriages were not necessarily CrossFit games based or, or training based, but my personality based of, of giving everything to whatever I'm doing. What I'm learning in my <laughs> mid forties, and I smile because it, I mean, I'm a slow learner. I'm a really slow learner, but in order to tell a really good story with my life, or to tell a good story to my kids or represent a good story to my kids. You know, it requires intentionally creating memories, intentionally creating presence with them or in relationships that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be heaps of time. I don't have to be a dad that spends all day, every day with my kids taking care of them or, or whatever, but finding those moments where we create spectacular moments, creating spectacular memories that tell a story to them when they grow up and capturing pictures of all of it. Because I find that this formula of, for example, I took these boys, I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and I took them on this adventure to this cute little canyon uh, in Colorado. And I was fully present and I carved out this time to make sure that I wasn't listening to a podcast. I wasn't trying to learn something while I'm driving there. I'm not trying to improve my business. I'm not even documenting this for YouTube, <laughs> which is all things that I would do. I'm literally going to play with my kids in this canyon. And I'm going to take some pictures of us enjoying this together so that not only do we create this really cool memory together, but we have pictures of this to reinforce that memory together. And I feel like, yes, my life is totally imbalanced. I train plenty. I work plenty. I take all that very seriously. And I struggle shutting all of that down in order to just be present with my kids or in my relationships as well. But I literally try to book specific time booking is the wrong word, but carve out specific time in those relationships with my kids to inject presence and create meaningful memories, meaningful stories. That's how I try to deal with it. I haven't figured it out. By far, I haven't figured it out. I just know that when I'm fully present and I intentionally try to create a new experience with I, I, the boys are just the best example. We'll try to create a, a really meaningful experience with the boys. It's so meaningful to me. It's so meaningful to them. I think that's how I try to deal with the imbalance because I don't think there's a way to do this. And I'm not sure if 
even the achiever type personality type knows truly, I mean, maybe some do, how to balance life. So with my imbalance, I try to take the time that I do have, that I do carve out to make that just super meaningful and not waste those moments being a three or trying to achieve something else or being distracted. The reason I love asking that question to great athletes and great achievers is because no one has it figured out. I don't care if you're an accountant, figuring out how to balance that time and figuring out where your value is. Because the reality is you do build self-esteem from achievement. I like to think that where my value lies has nothing to do with my title at work, has nothing to do with my title in fitness or what my body looks like. But that is insanely difficult, even for someone like myself who has much more time. For someone who's CrossFit champion or runs a Fortune 500 company, it's magnified. And that's why I love asking that question and getting those thoughts because it, but it's something everyone struggles with. I don't think you have to be a type three or you have to be a CrossFit champion to struggle with that. Well, let's end on discipline. I watched your video on discipline. I loved it. You define discipline as acting in accordance with your thoughts and not your feelings. Love that. I believe we can accomplish so much. I tell my girls this, you can accomplish so much when you learn to consistently do what you don't feel like doing. And so I try to do that all the time. How do you think about discipline, motivation, and kind of how they relate to one another? Yeah, I I think motivation is the key for discipline. I think having a clearly defined goal is absolutely required in order to have the discipline to achieve that goal. One of my favorite authors, Greg McEwen, I think is how I say his last name. He writes a book called Effortless. He says in there, the best way to not achieve a goal is to make it as vague as possible. So having a clear goal can help with that motivation. And, and even having that clear goal, and I coach athletes now on the elite level around this idea of mindset. For me, I didn't take the mentality or adopt the mentality that I am a CrossFit Games athlete until I was a CrossFit Games athlete. But I think there's some value in knowing that if I have some of the traits that could make me this achiever of this particular goal. So I'm going to use CrossFit Games athlete as this example. So if my client thinks he could achieve the CrossFit Games, and I agree with him based on his discipline, his strength, what he's working on, and his overall fitness, he can start to adopt this idea that I am a CrossFit Games athlete. Therefore, a CrossFit Games athlete does blank. And that helps reframe all of this. I I was a consistent tobacco user, chewer. I chewed tobacco for years. And it wasn't until I qualified for the CrossFit Games in 2018 that I realized a CrossFit Games athlete doesn't chew tobacco. It just occurred to me. And that day I stopped. I was sitting in a hot tub and I had a, a, a big old piece of tobacco in and I just, it, 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 I was like, huh, CrossFit Games athlete doesn't chew tobacco. Huh. Okay. So I threw it out. I mean, that was the easy part. The hard part was the week of awfulness that comes when you quit, you know, a nicotine addiction. But that was just part of it. A CrossFit Games athlete doesn't eat Doritos and pizza two or three times a week. You know, I can make that change. A CrossFit Games athlete doesn't drink three to four beers every night. And it could just be this identity change that helps me make these, these choices in my life. 
I could create a list, a thousand items that I do as a CrossFit Games athlete. We could do the same thing with anything. A healthy dad does blank. A healthy relationship requires blank. A quality business does this every day. One of my favorite mentors, you know, he mentions doing the consistent, boring things every day is the biggest key to success. This is business. This is athletic achievement. If this boring thing, it, it has to be something productive. It, it can't be like a boring thing like making coffee. This, this doesn't achieve a success, but you have to do the boring stuff every single day. But that consistency, we talked about this earlier, consistency over time creates these amazing results. But it does come from that idea that I want this goal. I want to be a CrossFit Games athlete. A CrossFit Games athlete, this mentality change does blank, 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 just fill in those blanks and then start to adopt those lifestyles. Well, I love the idea of shifting your identity because identity is is a powerful thing. And the idea of I'm trying to work out or I'm going to the gym or the worst, I'm on a diet. That's totally different than I'm an athlete or I'm health conscious. I, I just love that. And I've even found no matter what level you get to, you can continue to do that. So I've been on this shift from an achiever an athlete, an elite performer to an examined athlete. Well, what's that shift? It's a shift to someone who examines their thoughts and their behaviors and shares and is vulnerable with others and discusses that. That's something I didn't do two years ago. I certainly didn't share setbacks or failures. Shifting myself to an examined human being has been powerful for me, and I just love that. I also think discipline begets discipline. The, the longer you do it, the easier it becomes. And I just think that's such a, a wonderful lesson. And I thank you for, for spending time with me, for sharing your story with me. It's just been a pleasure to have you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Clay. This has been really cool. Thank you. Thank you.